They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread from house to house and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. We're getting better and better at that. I want to congratulate you. That was good. Good morning. I know uh, I see a lot of droopy eyes out there. Um, I'm glad that you enjoyed watching the royal wedding earlier this morning. Um, I hope that you found it very moving and meaningful. Um, but uh, we're, we're glad you're here. This is the last week of our For the Life of the World uh, series. If you haven't um, been here uh, before for, or you've missed uh, maybe some of these, this is the story that we've been telling of Jesus' uh, life, death, and resurrection. We started it at Easter. And then we talked about what happened immediately after that resurrection, with Jesus appearing on the road to Emmaus, appearing to Doubting Thomas and the other apostles, um, with the ascension, or um, the, our new favorite term, holy ghosting, that Nick coined. I like that, right? Todd, Todd has decided that we should have an award series, which I wholeheartedly agree with, called the Preachies, where we nominate and rank the sermons. Uh, it's going to be tough for him because he's doing most of them. But we, we have such categories. We have Sermon of the Year, which Jael preached uh, fairly recently, our, our worship leader today. Uh, we have Term of the Year, Holy Ghosting, which Nick uh, coined for Jesus' ascension. And I think Todd, Todd gets best Greek reference. Um, that's the award that he wins. This would be simultaneously the lamest and most fun uh, award ceremony to attend. So keep, keep your ear out. Um, maybe make some nominations. Um, and I, I know that Todd will appreciate that. But so that Holy Ghost thing, that was the ascension where Jesus uh, ascended to heaven and uh, the Holy Spirit was sent. And then we talked about Pentecost last week, that day where the Holy Spirit really arrives on the scene, the tongues of fire on the apostles and the teachers' heads and everyone hearing in their various languages, even though the speakers were, were not capable of speaking those languages. It really is a great way for the uh, Holy Spirit to arrive on the scene. And so now, to conclude this, this series, we're talking about this brand new church. These believers, this, uh, this really the first um, episode of this context that we find ourselves in. So the newborn church, who are these people in the newborn church? Now, a lot of us um, maybe remember the TV show or have played the game or at least know of the concept of six degrees of separation. You know this, right? Where the, it's the idea that everybody's connected um, uh, through six degrees or less. The, the TV show was trying to find like people in Hollywood and how quickly or with few, the fewest connections they could connect them to Kevin Bacon, right? And, and this, is, this is a concept that we're all aware of. Now, with Adventists, it's a lot less than six. I don't know if you, you're aware of this, but 
um, I participate in the Avenus Degrees of Separation game that a lot of us pr uh, play, which is where we meet a new Avenist, and we immediately figure out where they're from, and then try to say, oh, do you know this person, and do you know this person? And the answer is almost always yes, and you have now found the one degree of separation that uh, connects you. Recently, um, I went to a, a birthday party of a friend of mine that I like, grew up with in Maryland, and um, it was him and his roommate. I, I knew them a long time ago, haven't really hung out with them, but they live here now. And one of our church members who knew them independently of me, and then there was a fourth Adventist there, um, or a fifth Adventist there that I had never met before, so we immediately had to play this game. Oh, where did you go to college? Oh, I went to Oakwood. Oh, okay, so what year did you graduate? Oh, I graduated this year. Oh, okay, so do you know this person? Yes. Bam, we've done it. Now, this is all fine when we're like isolated and we're, we're not with um, people that do not claim our tribe, but there were, there were other, there was, uh, other people from different faith backgrounds there at the party too, and this one guy that grew up Catholic was just so blown away by this, um, this experience. He had never known Adventists before or seen this happen, and so after we've done this for a, a few minutes and we're explaining to him that like, yeah, we know each other because of this and this and this and this and this. He's just like, so you must know every Adventist, right? And I'm like, well, no, but yeah, I can feel that way sometimes. So think about how small a, of a uh, Christian community that a lot of us uh, find ourselves in, right? This newborn church was even smaller. Those degrees of separation were even fewer because all the believers at this point they either experienced Jesus' teaching or healing themselves, or they heard about Jesus from someone who did. So we're, we're here with people in this newborn church that are very, they only have one degree of separation from Jesus himself, let alone each other. This is who the newborn church is. They are the people who heard Jesus teach. They were the people devastated at Jesus' death. They saw his empty tomb. Jesus appeared to them on the road or in the room where they were hiding. They saw him ascend away. The newborn church is these people and the ones they've told. Now, Jesus is gone now. So what next? He sent the Holy Spirit. We've had this day of Pentecost. And this is the first event or moment where these people see God expressed or experienced in this, new, this newly revealed entity of the Holy Spirit. God had been present in the flesh of Jesus, but now God was present through the Holy Spirit working in all of these people. And that, that spirit was pretty powerful. I mean, if, if, if you say, if you do describe people's heads on fire, like, if that happened today, that would not be a sign of the spirit working, probably. That would be because I maybe got water in my headset and it just exploded, or, or, or some other weird thing like that. But this is how uh, powerful the spirit revealed himself when he first became present to these people. And then hearing your own language um, in a sea of people from all over the place, um, is what, an, what another powerful expression of the Holy Spirit. So, that's, that's what happens leading up to Pentecost and on the day of Pentecost. And now we have this group of people. What do we do next? That's where we find ourselves in this text. So starting with Acts 2, verse 42. 
about the newborn church, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, it's very easy for us to understand this devotion, this devotion to teaching. A lot of us um, are Christian or are Adventist because of teachings, right? It is something that is um, very important to our tradition. If you didn't know, uh, Seventh-day Adventism started because people um, who were already Christian were looking at the Bible and saying, oh, actually, I think this thing that we're doing today um, is a misinterpretation of what the Bible says we should be doing. And they did this with several different things, and they, it, it's what started this movement. And so the way that it spread was some dude who was one of these early pioneers would go to some town in New England where it was like officially Christian and there wasn't anything else going on, and they would set up a tent or they would go to the square or whatever, and everyone would come out to hear them speak. They would deliver a teaching, and people either were devoted to it or couldn't care less and kept doing what they were doing. The other way that this would happen is a dude would go to a town and challenge the presiding father or priest or pastor or whoever the religious leader was of that town to basically a debate to prove to them that what the Adventists believe was, you know, a better teaching to be devoted to. And even now today, that's not really happening with um, most of our experiences, but the teachings are still what most of us identify with, whether we realize it or not. Um, Sabbath school, those of us that, that attend that, that is because of the teaching, whether you're participating in that teaching or not. Um, the highlight of almost every Seventh-day Adventist worship service is a sermon. It's the pinnacle, right? You build up the whole service, and then at the end, the climax, you have a sermon, and then you sing like one song, and then you leave, right? A little like denouement, and then you go. Now, if you've been attending Advent Hope for a little while, you may have noticed that a, uh, about a year ago, I guess, we switched up the order of the service to try and distribute things a little bit more evenly to balance the different, different experiences of worship. But even, even so, sermon is still a primary thing for us. It's the thing that we send out in a podcast in these videos or in audio. When you get the newsletter on Thursday, it doesn't say who's leading worship or who's going to pray or who's going to tell the kids a story. It says who's going to preach and on what they're going to preach about. We get the devotion to teaching. It's in our DNA as Christians and even more particularly as Seventh-day Adventists. But maybe we're not so good at that second part of that sentence. They were equally devoted to fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. They were devoted to what the apostles taught, they were devoted to praying together, and to eating together. Those are the three things laid out here in this passage. Now, we, this may be obvious if we think about ourselves in the other parts of our lives that aren't explicitly uh, spiritual or religious or church. Food is how we spend time with those that we love the most. In fact, food can become a ritual pretty uh, quickly. Like I mentioned earlier, my sister's here. Hi, Lindsay. Hey. It's right there. It's right there. Yeah. Um, the reason I asked that question earlier, where do you like to take tourists, is because I wanted to see if there's any tips that I didn't know about, and I actually got one. There's a, like, a restaurant, an Italian restaurant, that plays old-school hip-hop. It's supposed to be really good, so we're going to go there. Um, but anyways, um, 
there is uh, food and eating with your loved, one, loved ones is, becomes ritualized. It's how we spend time with those that we love. There's, there's a pizza place in Maryland called Lido's. I'm not saying it's better than New York pizza. I'm just saying it's our thing. And um, to this day, my parents still go there at least once a week. We went there once a week growing up. And when I go home to Maryland, I have to make sure that I go with my parents to this restaurant so that the waitress that's worked there my whole life can see me and we can catch up, right? So like food and eating together with your loved ones becomes a ritual. It's very important to us. This is also how we meet new people or get to know people that we don't know very well too, right? If you're going on a date with somebody, you're probably going to go eat. If, you, uh, if Todd and I are, are going like, to try to get to know a new member better, we're going to go to lunch with them, right? This is how we try to get to know new people as well. I mean, I probably wouldn't be here if it wasn't for milkshakes, because Nick and I became friends back in California because we both liked milkshakes. If I didn't know him, I probably wouldn't be here. This is how we spend time with those we love and how we spend time with those we want to get to know. The, food, the teachings are important. The teachings we need to be devoted to. But living together, eating together with those people who also heard the teachings matters just as much. Verse 43, awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. So not only was the spirit at work there on Pentecost, but the spirit continues to be at work as this newborn church goes about their lives and the apostles continue to teach. Verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now here's where it gets maybe a little bit more radical. Does this all in common, does that mean um, ideological uniformity or complete agreements um, with each other? That probably doesn't because uh, even the disciples, those 12 people that spent every day with Jesus, even they um, didn't experience that ideological, complete uniformity or unity. Um, the apostles uh, had disagreements about uh, teachings or practice. So it's unlikely that this is referring to that larger group of the newborn church as having all things in common when it comes to everything they think or believe. It's probably more likely the case that it's something a little bit harder than that. They lived completely as a community. These people were outsiders who left the religious identities that they had grown up with, that their families were a part of, that their whole communities and towns were a part of because of this new teaching, because of Jesus, because of what the apostles said. This thing so upended their lives that they ended up doing everything together. They were on the ground floor of something that completely changed their lives. Verse 45, they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread from house to house and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all people. So they spent much time together in the temple. The message was so moving that they had to keep hearing it. Then they went from house to house, happily eating together. They were basically doing food crawls with their church friends. 
Now, I know this is going to seem like a little bit of a gratuitous segue to a community group's plug, because it is. You should have expected that when you saw me get up here with the microphone on that I was going to talk. I was going to find some way to talk about community groups, right? They were doing a food crawl with their church friends, often uh, just like uh, some of us are in the coffee crawling group together with our church friends. Now, I'm not a foodie as much as uh, some of you, so I leave that to other people. But there's a group of us from church that are in a community group together that have probably gone to 20 or so cafes together, just going uh, throughout the city, hanging out with each other, and, and, and crawling, breaking bread together. This is what the early church did. Now, they, maybe, they probably weren't drinking coffee because they didn't know the Ethiopians that found the coffee plant yet, but that's a whole different story. So these people went to the temple, they heard these teachings, they spent time praying, but then they went from house to house, crawling um, across their towns, eating together. Now, this last sentence is the part of the passage that um, a lot of us are probably most familiar with. And day by day, the Lord added to their numbers those who were being saved. I know I've heard that uh, a million times, um, attending seminary and, and studying religion in school and then uh, going to conferences and like getting marketing emails from Christians that want to sell me something. This is one of the number one slogan texts that people use. If you didn't know people did that, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but th th we have a lot of texts that become marketing slogans, and this is one of them. Day by day, the Lord added to their number. Anytime someone is trying to introduce um, us to a new church growth strategy or a plan for how to grow or, or bring new people in or best have an evangelistic series, this is the passage they refer to. Now, I'm just going to say that I don't think that's what this, passage, this passage's point is. And in order to say that, I'm going to uh, invoke one of my contractually obligated statements. Last week, Todd mentioned that he is contractually obligated to speak Greek every month, and the other contractual obligation is to, to explain a theological term that most people probably don't know. So um, uh, some of you, or maybe a lot of you, know this because you're good scholars of the word, but this um, interpretation comes down to our hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is the term for the word, uh, it's, it's the term for how you digest, interpret, read, study the scripture. So there are different types of hermeneutics, all uh, trying to do something else with the interpretation of the text. And two uh, terms involved in this are exegesis, which you might be familiar with, and eisegesis. So I just, did, I just got three uh, theological words in there, so I'm good for a few months. Um, exegesis is the idea that we read the text, trying to understand it as best as possible, trying to understand what the original writer would have wanted us to know, what the uh, original language, what the nuances might have been different from now, uh, have there been any changes in translation or in between versions throughout history, things like that. We try to best understand what the text is saying and then draw conclusions from that. Eisegesis is the opposite. Eisegesis is I have an opinion or a point or a cause that I want to find support for, that I want this text to say. So, for example, if I am, you know, a, a straight white male that wants my parishioners to listen to me, I'm going to go to the text and find a way for it to say that I'm in charge and you need to do what I say. That's eisegesis. 
So exegesis, what is the text saying and what can we learn from it? Eisegesis, what do I want the text to say? So I would argue that oftentimes our interpretation of this passage as being about church growth, the best way to grow our numbers, is an example of eisegesis. Now, it's important to recognize our biases and uh, the lenses through which we read, you know, at all times. The goal is not to read the text objectively. That's impossible. The goal is to acknowledge the subjectivity that we have and be aware of it so, um, so that we can be honest and open with our interpretations. The text was written by people, it was copied by people, translated by people, and now it's read by people, and each of those people comes from somewhere, believes in something. The goal is to be conscious of that context, to be aware of those lenses. So when we read, and day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved, so often the takeaway of this text betrays our eyes of Jesus. We come to it from a capitalistic context where growth is the goal. If you work um, for a Fortune 500 company or in finance, growth for your shareholders or your accounts or whatever is the goal. If you work in retail, growth of your customer base or market share is the goal. If you work at a restaurant, growth of how many people coming through the door or number of locations is the goal. We are in a context where growth is the metric by which we judge success and the goal by which we often uh, make decisions. So when we read that, when we read this text, it's very easy for us, coming with that context, to make this text say that. Now, I don't know that I've ever heard this passage um, interpreted or preached to say, time to sell everything and distribute it evenly among us. I don't, I've never heard that. But you can make a case that, that this text is very clearly saying that. I have heard almost exclusively that this text is a blueprint for how we can grow. This text um, is a toolkit for evangelism. This passage, this experience of this newborn early church after Pentecost is not a growth strategy. It's not an admonition for us to get more people to come to our worship services. It's not um, a, a strategy for how best to evangelize. This last sentence of this passage is the product of what the early church was doing. It's not the purpose of it. It does not say that because of their actions they grew, because of their strategies more and more people were convinced. No, these, these people, what they did is very clear. They believed, they prayed, they had everything in common. They ate together. That's what they did. The Lord is the one who added to their number daily. The purpose was to be in community with their fellow believers. The product, the symptom, the side effect of that purpose was God bringing more people to them. We want to worry about how to grow because that's what our jobs, our finances, our contexts expect of us. Growth is the goal. That's not our job. God will take care of drawing more people to him. Our purpose is to live in loving, worshipful community. Now, you may have heard that phrase before. If the pastoral staff and the leadership here at Church of the Heaven Hope is doing their job, you probably have heard it way too many times. 
because to live in loving, worshipful community is our official purpose here as a church, as a community of faith. We have this clearly defined, uh, beautifully constructed sentence, why do we exist? What is our purpose? And it is to live in loving, worshipful relationship with God and in loving community with one another, empowered by the Holy Spirit to participate in God's reconciling and restorative work through Jesus Christ of healing broken relationships between God and all people and between all members of the human family. What is our mission? We cultivate a community that learns and teaches how to follow Jesus. Now, I know this is a little bit of Avent Hope propaganda, but we didn't come to this text saying, how can we make this text or make other texts in the Bible match up to our purpose? We came to the Bible, we came to our tradition as a community and said, what is the Bible telling us we need to be about? And that's how we developed this idea. We, since I've been here at least, and probably a lot uh, longer before that, have not worried about strategies of getting new people in the door. Would you say that's correct, Nick? In fact, we have a problem of too many people coming through the door. <laughs> God is continually adding new people to our number day by day that we have never talked to, we have never met, and we are confused as to how they found out about us. <laughs> if you go to Google and you type in Adventist Church, we're like the seventh result. You have to go to like a Ukrainian, Spanish, and like um, Creole-speaking church before you can even know about Advent Hope, right? God is doing a great job of adding to our number. That's what, not what we're interested in worrying about. We want to worry about how do we live in loving, worshipful community with each other, just like this newborn church. See, Jesus came to earth. He lived, died, was raised again. He appeared to the, the disciples. He ascended to heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. We believe this. The Spirit has worked at some point in our lives or is continuing to work in our lives to tell us this story. Through some person or through some group of people, we have come to believe this. We don't have the benefit like these believers did of that first or secondhand experience of Jesus. But we've prayed together in this worship service. We'll pray um, outside of this worship service, either up here on the stage immediately following the service or on Wednesday nights with our prayer community group. Um, prayer is a part of our experience as well. We eat together, sometimes at our fellowship meal, every other week. The only other thing the church did besides believe and pray was to spend time with one another usually eating. They ate together, not at the temple, but in each other's homes, among equals, with glad and generous hearts. Jesus did what we cannot do for ourselves. The Holy Spirit has worked in our hearts to hear that story and to share that story. The Lord has added to our number, and he will continue to day by day. So let us be devoted to each other. In this building, but even more so outside of it. Let us have all things in common when we come together here, but even more so on the street or in our homes or in the park. Let us support each other, filling any need, yes, with the needs of the church's ministries, but even more so with the needs of one another. 
let us break bread together, downstairs at fellowship meals, but even more so at restaurants, at homes, throughout the city with glad and generous hearts. Let us praise God here in music and in word, but even more so with how we show goodwill to all people outside of this place. May the Spirit's presence always be felt in this community of God's children. Amen.